As we get closer and closer to Easter, we're walking our way through this book of John. And today we look at sort of chapter 8 and chapter 9 of it. And it's a continuation of chapter 7, which we looked at last week. And if you haven't uh, watched that sermon, you might want to watch it before you watch this one. It would just make a little more sense, but they do stand independently. But they both have to do with this Feast of Tabernacles. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from chapter 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming where no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Father God, we thank you for these stories that John records for us. And Father, I just pray that you would help us this morning, that as you open the eyes of the blind man, you would open our eyes to see what truth you have for us, but also that we would know your presence. And we would know your love and your peace this morning. So, Father God, open our eyes as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read that story of the blind man, I was wondering, have you ever been in a situation where you haven't been able to see anything? Uh, maybe you've experienced in a blizzard. You've been out driving and all of a sudden the wind has come up and the snow has come up and you can't see. Or you're out in a fog and the fog is so thick you can't see where you're going. Or, or maybe it's a dark, dark night and you're walking through somewhere and you can't see what you keep hitting your, your shins on or whatever. Or, or maybe it's just a dark room and you're trying to get from one side to the other and you can't quite remember where all the furniture is. But you're in this situation where you're you're walking through the darkness, and you're feeling very vulnerable. And I think we go through that not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. I think we go through that with times where we're saying that it feels like we're in the dark. It feels like something has happened, and it's just taken our breath away. It's taken our sight away. It just feels like we're, we're lost, and we can't see where we're going. And we maybe even lose hope in the future. And we just feel like curling up into a fetal position and just going to sleep for like six months. And maybe that's even the way you are today to some degree. Maybe there's some challenges in life that are just freezing you. And you feel like you've lost your, your vision for the future. You don't know where to go. You're not sure how to go forward. It, it could be a job. It could be health. It could be family. It could just be this COVID thing where, man, I'm just ready for this to be over. And this morning, I think Jesus has some great news for us. Because this morning, Jesus is coming to say to us that a story about giant lamps, priests' old underwear, and a blind man are going to come together to give us hope for the future. And that's worth just working on. So let's keep going. 
The whole story happens in the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about this last week. I'll just give you a quick recapture of this. Uh, Jesus stands up in the middle of this feast, and he talks about being living water. On the last great day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And last week we, we kind of just learned a little bit about the Jewish uh, religious year. There were three feasts. They happened at various times. In the spring was Passover. In the fall was more... Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, this feast that we're going to look at today. And then a little bit later was the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. It kind of has both names as well. And the important one, perhaps for us as Christians, is Passover. But for the early, uh, for the Jewish people of Jesus' day, it was the Feast of Tabernacles that was the great feast. And everyone would try and get there. And it forms the background, and if you understand it, you will understand John chapter 7 to chapter 10 far better. So this Feast of Booths, or this Feast of Tabernacles, it's called both. In Leviticus, God told the people that they should celebrate this feast each year. And it's to remember how God had led the people out of Egypt with Moses through the desert and into the Promised Land. And in that wilderness wandering time, as we call it, those 40 years that they were traveling through there, they lived in tents, and they were led by God, and he looked after them in the desert. And this feast reminds them of God's presence in times of trouble. And so every year for seven days, they would come down to Jerusalem, as many of them as could be there. They would kind of load up the donkey, get down there, and they would celebrate this Feast of Booths where they would build a booth or a hut or a tent, whatever you want to call it, out of branches, and uh, they would live there. And at some point during the feast, they would bring an animal for a sacrifice, and they would kill the animal, then they would get to eat 90% of it. Some of it was sacrificed to God, but the rest of it they could take back, and they would have this feast, and it would be just a very, very special time each year, or however often they were able to get there. And in the middle of that, there was this, what they called the water ceremony. And that's where a procession of priests would leave the temple. They would go down to the Pool of Siloam. They would take this golden jar of, for water. They would dip it in, fill it with water. They would carry it back up through the water gate, through up into the temple. And there they would take it, and they would pour it over the altar. And there would be two bowls there, a, gold, a silver bowl for water and a silver bowl for wine and they would have holes in the bottom because the water was to leak onto the altar. It was sort of a sacrifice to God. And it's in the midst of all that, which is reminding the people that in the desert they didn't have water, but God provided it miraculously. And it's in the middle of all that that Jesus stands up. On that last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, out of his heart. I'm the living water. I am the fulfillment of this. And we looked at that last week, and you can. Things that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. One, well, three, if you count the fact that you got to live in a tent for a week with your family. Uh, one was a water ceremony, but the other one was a light ceremony. And the light ceremony was really unique. If you can picture Jerusalem, uh, the temple 
takes up about a Mount Zion. And it was there, and in the temple gigantic uh, kind of lamps, so kind of stands with kind of coming out, and then bowls that held oil. And they were big. And these poor priests would clamber up these 75-foot ladders with a jar of oil. With oil each day. And at night, at, at sunset, after the sacrifice, let go. And uh, they would take their worn-out underwear, and they used that for the wick. And they would throw some of it in each of the the big bowls of, of oil, and they would light them. And these bowls would just burn. And with four of these, with multiple bowls on each one, at the highest point of Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem would be lit up. I mean, you got to imagine, this is before electric light, this is before any kind of light pollution. It is dead dark in Jerusalem at night. But now for these seven days, there's this immense light that's there. And they were there to remind the people that when they were wandering in the desert with Moses, God led them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. In Exodus, it says, The Lord went before them day by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel either by day or by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And so this was a reminder to the people that God was present with them in their time of great um, need of him when they were wandering in the desert, escaping from the Egyptians, but not yet in the promised land. And when they built the tabernacle, which was the tent version of the temple that they had, when they built that tabernacle, God came and, and the f pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, when it wasn't leading them to somewhere new, sort of hovered over that tabernacle. In uh, Numbers, it says, On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. And so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the clouds settled down, there the people of Israel camped. And so this gigantic uh, lamps in the temple were there to remind the people that God was present with them in their time of, of journey and their time of uh, trouble and their time of not knowing where they were going. And it was a promise that God was still with them. And John picks up on that image of light. And throughout his gospel, day and light and night and darkness contrast each other constantly. You remember we started with that uh, kind of poem that starts the book out. We call it the prologue. And it says there, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so John starts out the book. That's verse 3 of the book of saying that Jesus is the light of the world. 
And then he talks about darkness. And darkness is always where Satan is at work. Uh, if you remember on the Thursday before Good Friday, uh, Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room. He washes their feet. They have communion together, Passover. And, and then Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. And they say, who? And he says, well, the person I give this bread to. And he gives this piece of bread to Judas. And then it says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. John just has to put that there. He's saying that Judas is walking away from the light. He's walking into the darkness. He's walking into the light, into the night, because he's leaving Jesus' presence. So this is all the background to the story that we're going to read today. The background is that the Feast of Tabernacles has happened. It's the last day. It's the day that they don't actually light the, the lamps anymore. The light has gone. The water has gone. Jesus has already said, I am the living water. And again, it says in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but it will have the light of life. And so here he is at this feast where they have these gigantic lamps that have symbolized the fact that God led the people with that pillar of fire. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here Jesus is holding himself up as the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's holding himself up as the fulfillment of this light ceremony. In some ways, he's holding himself up as the one who was the light in the desert. That he was that pillar of flame that led the Israelites in the wilderness. That he is still present with them, leading and guiding them. And I think what John is trying to say to us is Jesus is still the light of our lives. And he still wants to be present with us. And he still wants to lead and guide us. That Jesus is still present. And, and this, these huge lamps are reminding the people of God's presence. His faithful presence and his guidance. In the challenges of their day. And now Jesus promises to be our light. Our guidance. In our day. And you probably wouldn't be surprised if you read that whole chapter and you realized that all it is about is from about then on, the religious leaders just take them on and just say, what gives you the right to say you're the light of the world? What makes you think you're God? And they accuse them of blasphemy. And they accuse them of being demon-possessed. And, you know, they, they actually do try to stone him at one point. The challenge with reading the Bible, I think, is that we divide it into chapters and verses so that we can find passages more easily. But the challenge with a chapter is we often stop reading at the end of a chapter. I mean, I try to read a chapter a day, then I read a commentary on that chapter. And, and you know, you just kind of get used to the fact that the chapters are there and that's where you stop. But the challenge with this one is chapter 9 just flows out of chapter 8. And so... At the end of chapter 8, Jesus has been in this discussion with the, with the uh, Jewish leaders, and it has not gone well. Um, they have not believed a word he's said. And at the end of chapter 8, he's in danger of getting stoned, um, stoned the old-fashioned way, and, you know, being killed, basically, by these people because they think that he is blaspheming by saying he is God. And when he says he's the light of the world, 
He says, I am the light of the world. And the I am part there, when Moses was meeting with God at the very beginning of Exodus, when God was calling him to actually go into Egypt and lead the people out, Moses saw this burning bush and he came over to see what it was and God spoke to him from there and told him to take off his feet, uh, take off his shoes. He's on holy ground. And uh, Moses does. And, you know, God says, I want you to do all this. And Moses says, well, who do I say talk to me? What's your name? And God says, I am who I am. And I am became a word for God. In fact, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh, which we know as Jehovah, uh, Yahweh. God's name actually just means I am who I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, he's saying that he's God. And so at the end of chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 9, we find these verses. Jesus said to the rulers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am and they picked up stones to throw at him because they knew he was calling himself God. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And so John sews these two stories together. Jesus at the feast saying, I am the light of the world. And then he has to get out of the temple in a hurry. And as he's going, he sees a blind man. And he's got the disciples with him. And the disciples take a look at this blind man and immediately they see a theological problem and they want to have a debate. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, uh, two things, first of all. Um, I don't know if you've ever kind of looked at that question. I find that a fascinating question. Uh, you got a man who's born blind and they're asking if it was his fault, if it was something he had done. Um, it was already done before he was born, you know, so the only place it could have been was when he was a fetus, you know, and you just kind of say, well, I don't know, like what sin did he commit? Was he lusting after other fetuses that were somewhere around him? Or, you know, was he uh, cursing out his mother because she ate garlic for supper? Or Like, you know, how, how does a fetus sin? But anyway, uh, Jesus said, no, no, probably, probably not that. But the biggest problem that Jesus saw with this is that they saw a one-to-one -one relationship between sin and sickness. And the one-to-one -one relationship was this. If you're sick, you sinned. And if you're sick, it's because God is punishing you for doing something wrong. They're not 100% wrong. They've just gone the wrong way with this. Sometimes when we sin, God does punish us or warn us or, or use illness or whatever. You remember even, um, say, when Moses and all the people were in the desert, at one point Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, kind of rebel. And God actually gives Miriam leprosy for a week. And, uh, you know, it, it does happen. But what the entire book of Job is about is the fact that God does not always treat sin with illness, and illness is not always a result of sin. That's what the whole book of Job is about. Uh, you can read all 42 chapters of it, but what, what, what it's really trying to say is just because you're sick doesn't mean you sinned. Maybe there's another reason. 
And I don't know what that is. Uh, I always say suffering is the mystery. And I'm just looking forward to Gary coming. And Gary's going to solve all these problems for you over the next 10 years or whatever. But he'll explain it all when he comes. But, but for today, what Jesus does is he just brushes off the discussion. He doesn't correct them. He just tells them they're wrong. But he doesn't tell them what the right answer is. And rather than just use this guy as a poster child for bad theology, what Jesus does is he takes pity on him and he heals him. And he does it in a fairly unique way. He spits on the ground, he makes some mud, and he puts the mud on the person's eyes, and then he tells them to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off, and he'll be able to see. And you might remember this pool of Siloam because we've seen it already in this Feast of Tabernacles. It's where the priests go down with that golden jug to get the water for the water ceremony. So the man goes... He washes at the pool, and he's healed. And he goes to see the Pharisees, because you're supposed to go see the religious leaders when you're healed, just to uh, have proof that you're healed now, whether it's when you're cleansed or whether it's when you're healed. And the Pharisees just object. Just somehow, they, they, they just, it just blows their minds. And one of the things that, that did it was because Jesus does this on a Sabbath. And on a Sabbath, which is their Saturday, but we would call it our Sunday probably, you just can't work. And the Pharisees, kind of in adding to the law, figured out a few things you can't do that would define work. The first one is you can't heal unessential illnesses on the Sabbath. And their point is, if the guy's been blind for all his life, it's unessential to do it today when you could do it tomorrow. You know, especially when you're not the guy that's blind. So they say, no, you shouldn't have done the healing today. You should have waited till tomorrow. Secondly, you made mud. It's against the law to knead bread, you know, to make bread. And uh, making mud is the same hand motions, I guess, as making bread. So, okay, you can't make mud. And the third thing is uh, you can't uh, anoint with oil or anoint people's eyes. And putting mud on his eyes was anointing. Um, they weren't 100% sure on the last one whether that was kosher or not, but, but they were pretty sure it wasn't. Parenthetically, if you're trying to figure out why did Jesus make mud, you know, sometimes he just said, be healed, and they were healed. Sometimes he could do that at a distance. Sometimes he could raise the dead at a distance. You know, like why did he spit, make mud, and rub this spitty mud on this guy's eyes? Uh, well, if you ever find an answer to that, write a book, because everybody else has, and nobody agrees. Nobody has any clue from the day John wrote this till today why Jesus made mud. I have no idea either. I just think it helps focus the fact that this healing happened on Sunday. Anyway, for whatever reason, the man washes and he can see. And then the, everything falls apart. All the disputes fire up again. The Pharisees grab the man and they question him. Then they grab his parents and they question them. Then they grab the man a second time and they question him again. They want to know, were you really blind? Were you blind from birth? Did you get healed? How did you get healed? And they're asking all these questions of the man. And the man just patiently answers. And as he answers the question again and again and again, you start to see that he's beginning to see clearer. He's beginning to see more clearly. First time, the man answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And I went and I washed and I received my sight. 
All he knows, the man they call Jesus. A little bit later. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Okay, so he's gone a little further now. The man they call Jesus. That was nothing there. That was just other people's stuff. Now he's saying, I think he's a prophet. Not the prophet, but a prophet. Uh, third time, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So now all of a sudden, he's a man from God. He's starting to see a little more clearly yet. And then the, the fourth time, when his eyes are fully opened, it's when Jesus comes and actually talks to him. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the formerly blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. You know, there's something very powerful in there that John just kind of slips in. He said, You have seen him. You know what's interesting is the Pharisees were all around Jesus, but they never saw him for who he was. All they ever saw him for was the, the man who kept getting in their way. In fact, it's interesting to see the Pharisees' description of him in comparison to the, to the blind man's. Their vision kept getting cloudier and cloudier. That started out with some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And then... For a second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So again, they, you know, they're, they're getting further and further away from seeing Jesus as the light of the world. And they finally say, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. And they just write Jesus off, and they do not see anything about Jesus as being the light of the world. You have seen him, Jesus said to the blind man. The Pharisees, they never saw him. And at the end of the passage, Jesus is summing up the point of these two chapters. And what it means that he is the light of the world. And he says to the Pharisees, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees heard him saying these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Well, that's an incredible story, I think, of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, the fulfillment of God's presence with his people in the desert in their time of need. And I think there's kind of three takeaways that I would just kind of have at the end of this. Three uh, great truths, if you want. And the first one is this, is that Jesus is God. Not a good man, not just a wise man, not just a loving man. He was God come in the flesh. And all of the Old Testament and all of the feasts and all of the tabernacle and all of the special days all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. They all point towards him and he fulfills all of that as he comes to reveal God to us. The second thing is that he comes to invite us into a relationship with him. And that relationship has to do with believing. It's what he said to that blind man. 
And the question comes, well, what do you believe? But Jesus heard that they had cast out the formerly blind man, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Believe is a very important word in the Gospel of John. It just goes on and on through that Gospel. And, and what does it mean to believe in the Son of Man? Well, you have to go back to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, it says, When Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I guess that's the question for this morning. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe that Jesus was God? Do you believe that he died on the cross for you? Do you believe that you need someone who can forgive you your sins so that you can have a relationship with God? If not, John would say you are spiritually blind. You are still wandering, trying to find your way. And then thirdly, if those two things are true, then Jesus promises to be the light of your life. Again, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, maybe this morning you have a relationship with God and you feel like you're in the dark. Maybe as we started out, you know, there's things that are going on and you just feel, I don't see God the way I want to see God. I don't see the future with the clarity I want to see the future. I don't, I just feel I'm in the dark. Where is this promise of Jesus being the light? And I just want to say what Jesus promises you today is if you feel alone, he promises to be present. If you feel you've lost your sense of direction, he promises to be your guidance. And he wants to be present in your life. And maybe he is already present but in a way that you don't notice. So here's the thing. In the desert, it was a pillar of fire. I would love to have a pillar of fire lead me. Uh, that would be great. In the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a 75-foot lampstand with huge bowls of floating burning underwear. But it lit up the city. I would love to have that kind of light. But in Psalm 119, it says this. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And what's pictured there is not a pillar of fire. What's pictured there is, is not a 75-foot lampstand. What's pictured there is a common, ordinary lamp like every person would have in their house in Jesus' day. A little tiny lamp like this, which I know you probably have trouble seeing, but at least you get the scale of it. And when you light that wick, when this is full of oil, it gives a light, but it doesn't shine across the room. It lights the next step. You know, for many of us, when we say Jesus is the light of the world, we want him to just illumine everything. When we had a boat and we used to come into an anchorage late at night, we had a one million candle power searchlight, literally a one million candle power searchlight. We would plug in and we would shine to see where the logs were. We would shine to see where the boy or the marker was if we were trying to get around something. It was awesome. I would love to have that in my life. 
But that isn't what God promises. What he promises is that he will be a light. He will be a lamp. And maybe already God is this light in your life, but you're looking for something much brighter. You're looking for something that's more than just the next step, but way down the road somewhere. And I think the reality is, like the blind man, the more we walk with Jesus, the more our eyes are open. You know, sometimes in the dark with the little light, after a while, your eyes uh, adjust to the light. They say it takes four hours for your eyes to fully adjust to the darkness. But then you start to be able to see just a little bit better and a little bit better, and you can see where you're going. You see, the other side of that is, is the, the Pharisees. The ones who said they could see, but they kept walking further and further from the light. It's like Judas who goes out of that upper room and he's walking into the darkness. And as John says, it was night. And this morning, Jesus promises to be our presence. He promises to be our guidance. He promises to be with us in our life as light. And maybe it's not this bright, shining, blinding light. But maybe it's just the steady flame and flicker of a lamp that reminds us of his presence as we see the glow, that gives us direction the next step of the way as we take those steps. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's God's promise for us this morning. Father God, we began by asking that you would open our eyes, that we would understand your word. And now we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see you, that we would see you in our lives that we would see you in guiding us, in leading us, in being present. Those times where it seems like it's just dark and our breath and our vision has been taken away, that you would lead us and guide us. And Father, that you would be present, that we would just be able to gather around that flame and just know the warmth of your presence. So Father God, today we pray, may we see you afresh. May we see that perhaps small lamp that is guiding us and leading us. And as that blind man, may as we walk with you, our eyes see more of you. That we may understand you better. That we may worship you more. That we may serve you wholeheartedly. Thank you that you promise that you are not only the light of the world, but you are the light of our life. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we've gathered to worship. We've opened God's word. We've taken communion. We've sung together. As we go into the week, I just encourage you to continue to do that, to continue to bring your praise to God to continue to, as Jesus said, to eat and drink of him through his word, through his spirit, through prayer.
and continue to walk in his light. And as we go, may God bless you in this week until we gather again next week. Amen.